the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to mention I've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing me a buck a month if you're enjoying the show. But uh, we have the libidinal band is back, and we're looking at the first half of chapter three in Jean-Francois Lyotard's libidinal economy. Chapter three is titled The Desire Named Marx. So obviously Marxist political economy is going to be sort of the primary topic of decision and Lyotard's interrogation of that. Let me go ahead and, and welcome our three contestants. We've got Cute Numina, we've got Young Agamben, and of course, my good friend Taylor Atkins. Always enjoy getting the band back together. Hell yeah. So again, we're covering about the first half of chapter three from the Grant translation. Apparently, I've been saying Hamilton. You know what was kind of funny, though, is like I was doing some research because Leotard in the chapter does mention Baudrillard. He meant, or not, and um, he mentions the mirror of production. So I was looking at that, and then I was looking at the subsequent. The next book Baudrillard did was Symbolic Exchange and Death. And Grant actually translated that one as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Which I thought cool. was funny. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even notice that. So kind of an interesting thing. I'd actually done a couple of episodes on the book Symbolic Death and Exchange with Red Library. Nice. I do just for like listeners. I want to go through and read these three definitions for dispositif, investment, and then jouissance. Just because I think those are kind of the main terms we're going to be discussing a lot. I think dispositif is probably the most important. So mm-hmm. dispositif. Although this term is conventionally rendered as setup, apparatus, and the like, this gives a somewhat banal mechanistic picture of Lyotard's efforts. In Dispositifs Pulsionnels, we find the following passage. The positivity of these investments must be affirmed rather than the disparity and exclusion they produce, the positivity rather than the dis of dispositif. It is the production of new libidinal operators that is, a, that is positive. The positif is also a positing, an investment, the dispositif, a disposition to invest, a cathexis. As such, the dispositif is subject to economic movements and displacements, an aspect which retention of the French term by combining the displace with the dispose, movement with expenditure help to convey. Investment, and Taylor, you could probably speak to this a little bit. He says, I have translated in investiment as investment rather than Texas. And then he references Strachey's translation of the same term for the standard edition because the French is indifferently employed in libidinal and political economies, whereas Strachey's English term remains classical libidinal. And I interrupted you, Taylor. Did you have something? Oh, just that, just that, um, uh, or if you, and then if you want to add anything as far as investissement. Yeah. The, I would just mention that Foucault writes at length about dispositifs as well. Okay. And, and so in Foucaultian translations, you'll usually just see that word in, you know, just as is transliterated, you know, it's obviously got its own life, but I thought it was interesting, right? Because it's, um, you know, a dispositive is kind of like a network 
and but it's also like the nature of the network tying stuff together so here you know it's it's interesting that that the dispositive and investment you know is it's it's in a more freudian vein right obviously a yeah. more libidinal vein than right. than what Foucault's working through yeah. but it but it is interesting because i remember when simondon uses that word dispositive there's no good translation of it and Laura well will use it too um, and a lot of times I'll just keep it in, in the French. The Simondon estate was like, oh, it's just device. And I'm like, no, not really. No, it's not. Because device in English is too like a physical thing. Right. And apparatus is a little bit better because it's a little bit more abstract. But again, just it just doesn't fit. It doesn't really work right. So I do like that Grant takes the time to quote that, quote Leotard's other book, which I still don't think is in translation. I don't believe it is. But in any case, yeah, this notion about a disposition to cathect uh, or to invest, it's interesting. And you'll see the same thing in uh, Anti-Oedipus. I think that Hurley, Lane, and Seam have the have a footnote where they're like, you know, obviously this has Freudian, you know, this has Freudian resonances, but we're not going to translate it as cathexis. First of all, that's just an awful translation. Sorry, Strakey. You know, you don't need to dress up Freud to make him look scientific. But yeah, the notion about invest in, invest, investing, you know, you have to remember that it's it, obviously it's not just economical and psychic. It's, it's, you know, it's libidinal. I guess a good example of that would be like, I've invested time into mm-hmm. or effort or money or whatever the case may right. be with like a sexual partner, whether it be like a significant other or even the prostitute sort of analogy that, that Leotard writes a lot on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's exactly right, you know, because you are investing time and time what is it, the money. Sunk, like the sunk time the fallacy? Sun, oh, the sunk cost fallacy? <laughs> yeah, sunk cost fallacy. Right. Yeah, I, I was watching, have you, okay, so my, my wife sometimes, but sometimes she'll watch reality TV show and it's like the trashier, the better. And her favorite thing is recently was 90 Day Fiance. Usually it's Americans meeting people from all over the world, Brazil, you know, um, et cetera. And, you know, they get this kind of 90 day grace period to see if they actually want to marry them, which would get them, get the ball rolling for them to become citizens. That show is like the, is like the best example of in real time, seeing these people deal with the sunk cost fallacy, right? Deal with this whole notion about, you know, not just time spent, but money spent. And emotion. Emotion and all these different cultural barriers and exchanges and, and the travel and et cetera, et cetera. And all the legal, you know, work to even set up, you know, marrying, a, marrying a, someone from another country. So, and, and you could just see them putting up with, there's all these red flags going off. I mean, <laughs> I think the first season is, is cute because actually all the people seem to like get along and actually, it actually worked out. And so you see like the, the next few seasons, that perhaps the producers were like, yeah, but we want to see train wrecks, right? And so you'll you'll <laughs> you'll really see in like season three and four that just everything's going wrong for everyone, and uh, it's kind of delicious in that sense. Is it's not it's, it's less Schadenfreude and it's more just kind of again, it's like it's literally like watching a train wreck in 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 action. But it's you see these psychological this bullshit that they're doing uh, to to excuse away all of the things that in normal relationships we'd be like, what the fuck? Like serious red flags. So yeah, um, sunk cost fallacy. But you see that in, in other reality TV shows that are usually around dating. Like like my wife watches The Bachelorette and shit. And you'll see, 
you know, there's like 30 guys drooling over one. Now that's decent. libidinal economy, right? <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. I mean, and it really is. It is because yeah, it's like yeah, an yeah. artificial scarcity of sexual selection and then right. the performity and like all the investment that goes yep. on of the libidinal drives and so forth. That's good. No, I think that you're, you're exactly right. Y'all might be too young for this, but maybe Taylor, you can remember um, Temptation Island is sort of a similar thing. Do you remember that? Yes. It was like couples. It was like couples that went to this place and then they could like date other people. And it was like a total, right. yeah. a total clusterfuck situation. I remember, I remember that. That's not a show that, she, that I ever watched, but I knew about it. Um, yeah. She does watch something that's kind of a reboot of it. It's called Love Island, but it's not yeah. couples. Um, yeah. It's, but yeah, you'll, you'll see, you have to like pair up with, uh, with compatible dates and then like, every few episodes they'll add new people and then they'll like kind of, um, you know, they'll give a chance for you to recouple and yada, yada. Um, I mean, it's, um, I thought it'd be trashier. Uh, the, the American version is, but she usually likes watching the UK yeah. version uh, because they're, they're usually just charming in all, all, all the different ways that Americans yeah. are. Um, the American did, one is it definitely It wasn't very gross. successful in America. Yeah, I think that's yeah. That's it only the made issue. it a season, right? That's the thing. But it in, wasn't very popular when it was Americanized, but it's still but very in, popular in both popular. the UK and America to watch the UK version. Yeah, yeah and I think that's just perhaps because um, there's something about I I don't know what it is. I feel like there's something about the American sensibility that uh, you know they're they're not as it, it's interesting to watch stupid British people do this there's they're so charming when they're like there there was one season um i just laughed my fucking ass off there was you know there's like six hot girls around a pool they're 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 laughing and you know and one of them brings up how they're not gonna have any more cheese because of brexit and one <laughs> of them's like one of them's like what's brexit and you know you see them you see like the 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 we the mouse turning in the in the <laughs> wheel in their head and um you know they Obviously, they don't. I think one girl is able to explain, like, "Oh, well, we're leaving the European Union," and they're like, "But, but I like my cheese." And it was just, it was. Just, I just laughed so Which fucking is, hard. Obviously, that's that. Even <laughs> funny as that even goes back to the libidinal economy, right? Like, lit, quite literally, um, the desire for <laughs> cheese or whatever. Consum- like, yeah, your product, supply mm-hmm. and demand, blah blah, flows of yeah. desire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and. Um, it is interesting just how much, I mean, we, we've been watching a, a train wreck in, in America in the past four years, but Brexit is one of those slow going, ongoing train wrecks that it's definitely one of the biggest self owns in this past decade. I don't want to get into the weeds of discussing <laughs> yeah, it too Brexit. much because I probably have a different, I have a different take on it. Oh, it's fine. I, I mean, the fragment, the fragmentation, I think is something that like from an accelerationist standpoint, you would maybe. Right. Like Nick Land is probably all about brick. Well, yeah. I mean, for the racial <laughs> shit. Yeah, definitely. For one, but right. also like the breaking up of the European <laughs> Union as a economic hegemon is probably right. at, at the end of the day, a, a good thing in this, in some regards, right? I guess. In the accelerationist sense, because yeah. the European Union is like the old guard and it's the, it's fragments well, of the, of the old. Um, it's this, you know, the hegemic powers of capital, whether it be the European central mm-hmm. bank or it's all the same shit trough. Yeah, exactly. I, um, I thought it was cute that just the obliviousness of the, of the British girl is only one of them out of, out of the six and knew anything about it. 
this ties into Leotard as well, although maybe not as much libidinal economy, but for, again, fragmentation of media. I mean, the mm-hmm. maybe postmodern condition would be the better like I was lens thinking- for this discussion for that discussion because of the breakdown of sort of the meta narrative, right? I guess like at one time the BBC was probably the only TV station media you could get, yeah. right, or news and whatever. And, and now like, like something five channels, like that. yeah, the ability to be siloed into whatever different little niche market or what have you. Right, yeah. and it's also the the breakdown of the There's legitimacy of, of of states, right? Yes, I mean, that too, with, right? With global capital, which right. is which is why Brexit which is has, also libidinal, and yes. it's for the puissance mm-hmm. or puissance. Mm-hmm. On that note, I should, let me yeah. read uh, this jouissance definition, and then we can move forward. Jouissance, French retained throughout, except where it is employed in a context where enjoyment would serve better to indicate the political legal sense of the word, i.e. the enjoyment of rights or of property or wealth. For the verb joie and the adjective jouissif, I have used enjoy and enjoyable with the French following in brackets. We should set the table, historically speaking, because Lyotard is one of the, or one of the most involved with the actual events of 68 that sort of lead to the publication of Anti-Oedipus, obviously this book, Libidinal Economy, and then later on, Baudrillard's symbolic exchange and death. So I think this is like, there's a lot of ressentiment here, and I think that expresses itself. Obviously, before 68, Leotard's a pretty de- pretty devoted Marxist and is writing for Marxist journals, and like I said, it's on the ground. I don't know like the ex- like what his actual activism was specifically, but I've definitely heard he's one of the more involved among them all. And so this is like a negative theology, I think, of Marx would be maybe a good way to describe it. That's a very interesting point. You should bring up this this note you have here about the... Uh... Yeah. It's funny that he hits up this often lauded or like discussed kind of distinction between early and late Marx, because I think early on in particular, what is it? The manuscripts of 1845? Yeah. The economic manuscripts. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in the, uh, at that point, Marx is still pretty, like, he's doing more, I think, what you would typically consider to be more of philosophy. Like, it's less, it's less materialist, in scare quotes, <laughs> right, than capital Marx, which is more, the more late, mature Marx, where he takes, there's sort of this shift from philosophy to science, in a broad sense. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of satirizing uh, that Althusserian distinction of that young Hegelian Marx and the mature scientific old man Marx, whom he calls the prosecutor of desire and the little girl Marx who desires. Lyotard's critique is, um, he's trying to, I think, really attack Marx's scientific, in quotes, <laughs> approach to Marx, um, the nature of desire. And I think what he draws on specifically is right. this fascination or this obsession with commodity fetishism that Marx has. And that's a lot of this chapter is sort of circling around that question of, of Marx and desire, at least kind of broadly speaking. I think part of it has to do with, at least from like a materialist or like a Marxist material analysis of capitalism as a system or like a structure that just has to do with how it's usually read at the psychology or the structure of desires already beforehand understood in the system it's already part of the system it's materially understood so you don't have to come up like a i mean i think that's what some critics of marxist marxist thought would say would be that it doesn't have like a sufficient like understanding or explanation of yeah he's not really interrogating individual subjectivity he's 
doing something a little bit different, which I think <laughs> that gap is what a sort of that's where like they try to plug in sort of the Freud or Lacan machine into Marx because he li- largely leaves that subjectivity out, out of his equation, right? Exactly. Which is funny because I think maybe the opposite would be like Stirner because Stirner is like specifically focused on the individual ego and the ego being sort of the foundational experiential or phenomenological apparatus <laughs> to go back to that term, right? Use of like that definite definite article, like I, you know, mm-hmm. what do I want? What do I desire? And starting from that point of view, as you've already mentioned, Goop, to like develop, you know, your theoretical groundwork. Yeah, there's also this this desire to reintroduce desire itself back into Marxism, which I think Loyotard is right to point out is necessarily sapped of its subjectivity and the sort of desiring machine, so to speak, the human behind Marxism has sort of been continually repressed and the ideas of Marx are elevated to this level of science or this level of almost theology that I think it speaks to what we were talking about last time with Freud and countertransference, mm-hmm. where to me this is almost like Loyotard pointing out that even Marx had his own Countertransference, and that he had his own desires Ooh, at the time that that yeah you know that precipitate parts of his theory. So when we reintroduce desire into Marx, we start to see Marx as as he fully is as a desiring machine that produced these things, rather than mystifying the production of Marxist theory by saying that basically you know, we won't think about Marx the person. We won't think about Marx the person who desired things, who like had a life, who lived a life, and then wrote this theory. I was going to jump back to this discussion of Lyotard being very much involved in the events of 68, but he, in addition to Marx, he spends a lot of time, or at least a decent amount of time, referencing Baudrillard as well. Mm-hmm. And I think in specific, I can't remember if I mentioned, the book that he is often citing is Baudrillard's The Mirror of Production, which was Baudrillard's second book. There's something interesting like, with Lyotard and Baudrillard in the sense that they both are the most involved with 68 and they both have the most, I guess, violent reaction against Marxism, like yeah. the most resentiment, <laughs> resentiment built up from that experience. Yeah, looking the at emotional trauma of that right. experience is very much, you know, and I think what they're saying about Marx applies to them too, in a certain sense, where you have to, you know, using Lyotard's own logic about desire and how we should think about theory and theorizers generally, we have to also think of Loyotard as a human who lived through 68. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Who, who was emotionally traumatized and who had his desire sort of rerouted Thwarted, yeah. after he sort of, yeah, after sort of watching the collapse of that revolutionary spirit. Yeah. And that's important to understanding his philosophy. You can't repress the life of Loyotard or any of these thinkers and understand why they came to this kind of analysis. You know, a lot of the criticism, I think, of the post-structuralists or post-modernists or, you know, whatever term you want to slap onto this sort of quadrant of thought is that, like, these thinkers, this theory has a material, it's not just coming out of nowhere, right? Right. Like if they're not just coming out of nowhere. They're like there's actual material circumstances that have led these people to take a radical shift in thought. Mm-hmm. And it's the events of '68. It's the like old French Communist Party siding with the fucking De Gaulle government. And right, you know, right. the sort of got to be a crushing kind of feeling whenever there's that 
I don't know, that's, you know, maybe the last time there was a real potential for some type of, some kind of revolutionary moment and it sort of petered out. And so I think it's easy to fall into like a very cynical place after. What does he say on, on 103? He, he talks about the Communist Party, which loves not the revolution, but the means by which they are able to make it happen, which in their hands is only a pretext to the machinery for capitalizing the desire for revolution. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it reminds me of the story about in the 50s when Lacan was basically kind of forced out of the, of the first kind of more medicalized school and he's he's trying to do this return to Freud. Well, he he won. He like sends off his new manuscript to the Communist Party. He had some friends there, and then his brother was a fucking priest. He sent he tried to get his brother to get him a a meeting with the Pope, and like <laughs> failed <laughs> failed on both ends. Right. <clears throat> so he was trying to like you know uh, like like the old France and the new France, if you will, the two sides of the the big sort of political bodies and just had no real success in, in sort of gaining leeway in either, um, which is probably probably a good thing in a certain sense, right? Uh, especially when it comes to the Catholic Church. But it does remind me of Leotar, you know, he's, Leotar's like, we're not going to do critique, right? He, he writes elsewhere. I don't know if you guys looked at it, the, the little essay I translated for Vast Abrupt. Um, that's how he starts off his... This, that's how he starts off um, that essay with basically saying, we're not going to do critique. You know, critique is this movement of the, of the negative that sort of tries to one-up everything, right? And, and he says the same thing. We're not going to, and he already says there's 100,000 critiques of Marx, right? And so there's, it would just be one more added yeah. to the stack. How funny is that in the context of the discussions you and I have had about La Ruelle and sort of like I've referred to it as the dead labor of, I mean, I've used that right. specific example of like, how do you do Marx after Marx? Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. If I think that's why he, he, his, the stakes of the book are to say, no, we're going to go back and we're actually going to look at Marx in a way that shows already that political economy is a liberal economy. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the wager Leotard has and why he, why he brings up what he, he has that name drop. He name drops Baudrillard. He name drops Castoriadis and who's the other one? I guess those are the two. Are you, is anyone familiar with Castoriadis? I'm not. He does have, I think he has a book on, what's it called? The, is it called like the imaginary community or some shit? Or I don't want to mix them up with the imaginary institution of society. I think that's his most famous book. Um, And that's probably the one. Well, it says it's originally published in 75. So maybe that's not the book he's referring to. After. Yeah, because this was 74. You know, he's a, he's a social critic. He's an economist. He, he weaves in psychoanalysis and stuff. So he's, he's interesting. I do want to mention too, since Leotard does spend a lot of time in discussing Baudrillard and just to discuss Mirror of Production just a little bit, which is Baudrillard's second book, his first being The System of Objects. And I'll throw out a little trivia here. that So System of Objects was his doctoral thesis and he has the most incredible committee of all time. It's Roland Barthes, it's Henri Lefebvre, and uh, I think Pierre Bourdieu. Or his three, like his dissertation <laughs> panel. Can you imagine? That's pretty good. <laughs> pretty fucking intense. <laughs> System of objects, he's really more of kind of a typical Marxist analysis. And mirror production is maybe the sort of the gestational stage of what you'll see mature in, in the next book, uh, Symbolic Exchange and Death. And so within the whole idea behind the mirror production is this 
sort of a critique of Marx and I guess his focus on production and labor and sort of that mechanical process of capitalism and how that view or valoration or the sort of notion of the subject as worker, as that being sort of their primary identity, is sort of mirroring effectively the bourgeois idea of capitalism and, and its organizational structure. Yeah, and that comes at a time when that particular part of Marx was being heavily criticized across the world. Like my, some of my favorite critiques of Marxist productivism are the Wages for Housework movement, primarily Silvia Federici and a, a series of both Italian Marxist feminists and American Marxist feminists making this argument, Wages for Housework, that was almost like a, a fake demand because they were Marxists. They didn't want to be a part of the wage system, but the demand was to say, look, like this is work and you're not charging it because if you did pay us for this work, the entire economy would collapse, yeah. Yeah. you know, like it's based on our exclusion. But Baudrillard has this much more abstract approach to it, which I'll just say, like, I, I'm not sure whether any of you are productivists or anti-productivists, but it's an interesting question to sort of think about. And I think the main part of Marx where that comes from is his essay, Estranged Labor, in which he makes this connection that work is almost this natural extension of the human condition itself. And when we're alienated from our work, that means we're alienated from ourselves. And so there's this idea that production is natural sort of to the human condition that both Baudrillard sees as linking Marxism to sort of the same outcomes of industrial society and industrial capitalism that sort of liberalism or even neoliberalism produces. And you have this critique of what, what a anti-productive Marx would even look like. For Baudrillard, that's hyper abstract, but there was in this time period, many different anti-productivist critiques that were much more material, but it just is a time when this is like the major post-Marxist debate. I actually want to read something from symbolic exchange and death. It's published in 76 and is like loosely, I think, a response to both Lyotard with libidinal economy and Deleuze and Guattari and anti-Oedipus, or it's at least its project is sort of, or it's diagnosing or attempting to grapple, I think, with some of the same. They're, the, all three books are basically grappling with the same thing, this post-68 mm. search for like a new sort of political project of some kind or lack thereof, or like a new paradigm for thinking about bringing about change in society or what have you. And this is actually great because this actually, he even name drops Leotard and this motif of prostitution that Leotard focuses a lot on. Mm -hmm. Like most practices, it is now a set of signing operations. It becomes part of contemporary life in general. That is, it is framed by signs. It is no longer even the suffering of historical prostitution, which used to play the role of the contrary promise of final emancipation, or as in Leotard, as the space of the worker's enjoyment, uh, with jouissance in brackets, which fulfills an unremitting desire and the objection of value and the rule of capital. None of this remains true. Sign form seizes labor and rids it of every historical or libidinal significance and absorbs it in the process of its own reproduction. The operation of the sign, behind the empty allusion to what it designates, is to replicate itself. In the past, labor was used to designate the reality of a social production and a social objective of accumulating wealth. This is an off of what you said. That's a great quote to read. I'll just give like another just sort of background fact that's in, in historical importance to it. Baudrillard, his Marxism comes a lot from, he identified as a situationist as he was writing that doctoral thesis. And so you can start to see what Baudrillard's philosophy springs out of that situationism into this like radical 
I mean, I would lightly identify it as a post-situationism, you know, yeah. where he sort of deals with this level of simulacrum above the commodity, which is the sign itself. But at the same time, he's so beyond what was originally situationism that I think that it would be wrong for me to say, oh yeah, Baudrillard is a situationist and you need to understand that he's a situationist. It's just that Baudrillard was also coming out of not just Marxism, but situationism. That's a good call out developing for developing sure. these ideas. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, what is it? Uh, what's Society of the Spectacle and mm -hmm. Simulation Theory or yeah. you know, simulacra and simulation is not, it's a pretty, you can draw a pretty clear line in terms of content. An evolutionary line, not necessarily. We're not saying that they're one and the same. There's a direct there's like line. a one-to-one -one reference. Yeah, <laughs> but there's an evolutionary line. The parts that I wanted to flush out about this section of the reading that we gone is how closely it ties to contemporary accelerationist readings by either Nick Land and Mark Fisher. But I don't know if you guys want to bring something else up before I... I'm not afraid of going there. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this a lot. I recorded yesterday and I've been doing a similar deep dive with Max Stirner's The Unique and Its Property. And um, I'm getting the sense that this there is a similarity between kind of what Leotard's doing is he's, I think, taking a Nietzschean approach to desire as a sort of analogous to will to power or even like a Schopen, like Schopenhauer's will in that sense that will is somewhat similar to like egoism as egoism being kind of a base level phenomenological thing right like it's an intent to to quote taylor quoting guattari non-totalizable intensive multiplicity right but there's also right. this zone of intensity, I think, in the in the creative nothing. That will, I think, is the real important thing. And I think that because Leotard, effectively, like I think the grand stroke of the book, really overall, is is making that argument about about desire not having any kind of positive teleology to it, and that basically anything anything goes when it comes to constructing the new world in like this sort of Nietzschean vein, literally getting beyond good and evil value judgments of that kind and sort of casting that off into this post-human world. That's perfect you brought that up because because um, I had a quote that I, I think we should read since we just read the Baudrillard quote about Leotard. This is at the bottom of 104 and Leotard says, we are very close and very far then from what Baudrillard is doing. And this is an excellent opportunity for us to try to explain why, since there is a movement in Baudrillard with which we feel synchronized and co-polarized. We are very close, read them and see, but also very distant, since what governs our brother's approach remains burdened in our eyes with hypothesis, theory, and critique. This is not for one of denouncing critique as imperialism and theory as racism in formulas we joyfully endorse, but as holy and beautiful as it is, his anger aims ultimately at the true once again. It reproaches political economy, even and especially if this was Marxist, because we were hoping for precisely the opposite from it, of remaining within the sphere of production of value of labor and thus forgetting something repressing or rather foreclosing in a sort of perversion, which Baudrillard previously qualified as, as fetishist, a relation between persons which would not be subordinated to the consideration of the product, but would be entirely governed by symbolic exchange, entirely centered on the exhaustion of the libidinal resources of love and death in a give and take, heedless of the conservation of goods, heedless of power, bound up with rekindling force at all costs. Political economy, therefore, would be something which begins somewhere in the history of humanity, in any case with a certain source of certain sort of social dispositif, far then from being the universal truth of every society, presenting itself veiled in embryo in archaic societies from which it would be absent, 
It would be the retroactive projection of the capitalist assemblage onto symbolic exchanges that would ignore all interest in order to count only as passion and all equivalents in order to exhibit nothing but ambivalence. So I think that this is, again, this gets to why it's appropriate for our discussions of liberal economy to, to be called wicked Leotard and why Leotard thinks of this period in his writing as quote-unquote evil or wicked. It's not necessarily that like he may later have found some redemption. It's like taking to the extreme this Nietzschean understanding of like the dialectic of the the real and the true world right and and mm. once you get rid of the apparent world right the true world goes with it so Leotar qualifying and he calls him his brother I, I love that qualifying Baudrillard is still trying to sort of excavate or find whether it be behind the mirror or through the mirror or whatever this uh, hold on to this notion of the true in his essay on decadence this is where he's like wanting to show like taking this Nietzschean, uh, we could call it like an accelerationism if you want, but it's this, it's an acceleration of decadence, right? The decadence of the mm-hmm. true, of the, um, being one of the categories, but also of the final, this discourse about final things, last things also has to be gone into decadence. And so I think that that's, that's interesting that Leotard would, in that sense, you know, in the classical sense, he's, he is, saying to to show liberal economy and political economy being one and the same, we have to wager on a kind of sophistry or at least a mm-hmm. certain type of sophism precisely because if the sophist, if we understand the sophist to be he who does not wager on the truth, does not take like a, like a stand or claim for the true. And I think that's why also he's, he's denouncing or saying we're not doing theory. Right, we're not doing another critique precisely because we've given up that aspiration. Aspiration of uncovering truth. Right. Right. Okay. I think that's an actually that's like, in some ways, Loitar would hate this, but I'm going to say that's a critique of Baudrillard in many ways. <laughs> it's obviously slightly right. a critique, even though he denounces the idea of critiquing. Period. But we can kind of like underst- I can understand what he says about critique. He's like we can still like basically complain about other philosophers. We can still like say what they said is not necessarily correct, but critique itself is not very feasible anymore. Critique. But what is I want to say is like critique is dead. But I, what I like about Baudrillard is he is doing exactly what Loyard is saying. He's engaging in almost a theoretical level or an idealist level of thought, but. Baudrillard's whole thing, which is sort of its own poetry and beauty, is taking these concepts to their polar extremes until they collapse into one another. Distinctions between this and that, X and Y, so so on and so forth. He takes the theoretical concepts to their sort of collapse into unity, which I think in and of itself is not finding truth, but in the Baudrillard sense, it is truer than true, and that it collapses the truth down so that you can see what was really there to begin with, which is Hyper sort of a polarity. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know? Is that the it, dispositif element too? Like, You're talking about in this passage or are you just talking about in general? No, just in this passage, I think. As you mentioned, in, in any case with a certain sort of social dispositif far from being universal truth uh, over society, presenting itself veiled in embryo, etc. Yeah, I, you know, I, obviously I, I thought about, um, you know, Deleuze and, and Guattari at the beginning of, or at the beginning of chapter three of Antietipus, when they're like, if we follow Marx exactly, then we can see how capitalism, uh, or see how there is this universal history, right? Because I think that that's that's the thing that they do avoid, even if they might 
seemingly fall into it. You know, if we guess, we might say, oh, well, they, they're just saying, they're just finding capitalism as a kind of, in the negative image, you know, in, in primitive societies because of warding off of decoded flows and et cetera. They make very clear, right, that it could have happened elsewhere with different conjunctions of flows, of, of different machines, of different political involvements. And so, you know, it's still, it's still a contingent, it's still a contingent transformation. It still comes on the scene contingently. And I think that, but I do think that there is a way of a kind of crude Marxism. Um, I think that what is being, you know, what the target of here is, is this crude Marxism that wants to say, well, capitalism gives us, it's, it's already there in embryo in primitive societies because of, you know, accumulation or taking stock, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that would be if we weren't to follow or appreciate Deleuze and Guattari with all their reservations and their and their bracketings and qualifications and warnings, then we could fall into a kind of crude idealism or tele- teleology that like capitalism is just the natural progression of exchange. And I think that that's yeah. what Leotard is wanting to... Which would to- be like a, yeah, which is like, I think maybe even presaging like a Gnan, like the idea of Gnan, right? Or like this mm-hmm. this kind of Lamarckian evolutionary thing, right? Or whatever, like there's... You know what I mean? There's some kind of basic force of the universe or law or like that everything has to sort of function around. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's exchange. What I think is interesting too is the criticism of Baudrillard often is that he sort of has this romanticism for a pre-capitalist society. Right. On the (coughs) opposite end of that, I think what is kind of cool about Baudrillard is that he's one of the few thinkers of the, well, maybe I shouldn't I'm kind of talking out of my ass, but he's like someone that I think directly investigates structural anthropology, I think, a little bit mm-hmm. more than other thinkers. And he's kind of saying, okay, like there is this pre-capitalist primitive society where things were not based, where society wasn't organized or what, you know, society, whatever right. could, that could have been at the hunter-gatherer level or even pre-hunter-gatherer, right? Obviously pre-industrial yeah. culture or civilization so he's saying that, and then Leotard's reply is, no, no, it's, there's, this is sort of a certain precondition for, the, for human subjectivity is to have to produce, to reproduce one's own existence, like mm-hmm. physically in the world. And there's this easy, cynical sort of movement you can make to say that this is sort of some sort of natural or evolutionary consequence, that right. this is how it always had to be, and that yeah. markets are always going to be there, which Deleuze and Guattari to a certain extent when they say that markets are at the end of history, you know, they've always been there sort of in the Nicklandian sense, hyperstitioning themselves into human evolution. There's almost this, this thing, though, that I would say that I, I believe, and I, I don't want to say that this is the exact interpretation of Loyotard or even people who think this way, but that doesn't necessarily mean just because Marxism was hijacked by the same sort of what I'll call an alien force doesn't mean that that is the natural evolutionary, you know, way of the universe. And when I say that, I mean, when Marx says that, you know, there was the primitive accumulation, feudalism, then capitalism is a necessary step on the way to communism sort of draws that there's an evolutionary natural conclusion to the way, you know, anthropology works. And I think Loyotard and Loyotard specifically, I'll just use Loyotard as saying, yeah, that's true if you accept the premises that both Marxism and capitalism are using, you know, they're sort of in the same evolutionary pathway. But that doesn't mean that that evolutionary pathway is something that we have to accept. That's just naturally true. It's just, it's just the way we've structured 
or the way Ganon in certain ways has structured our relationship to each other. So there's this like, what is subversive? Is Marxism very subversive if it puts us on the same path, the same path to overproduction or the same path to a philosophy of production that is not that far off from the productivism of capitalism? Yeah. I think there's like what Nick Land does is take that cynicism of reading all of these thinkers and saying, well, look, this is just the way it is. You better get in lockstep and the quicker the better, you know? Instead, there's this idea of, you could reject this at any point. And I'll just like draw one more example of Sylvia Federici's book, Caliban and the Witch, has a very interesting historical perspective of specifically women who prior to capitalism were trying to have a revolution. We're trying to have a pre-capitalist, almost feudal revolution that would have avoided capitalism in the first place. And I think if you, if you start to think that that's a possibility, then you start to think then it's possible that we don't have to be on this evolutionary path where capitalism and productivism is accepted as something we just have to go through, like a historical process we just have to go through. I think in a lot of ways that's kind of, uh, I kind of want to escape saying criticism just because mm-hmm. that's exactly what Leotard is trying to avoid uh, here. If anything, he's trying to like yeah. flush out the different intensities already found within the Marxist text and the way that he mm-hmm. describes it as like old man Marx and the little girl, the little girl being like the, the naive notion or the idealistic notion, desire of like for revolution, for example, something mm-hmm. along the lines of May of 68. And then, you know, old man Marx being more of that um, rigid systemic, I would say like traditional analytic Marx of Capital. And in a lot of ways, I'm just going to piggyback off what you've already said, Young, which is that there's this insight, at least Marxist texts, even works developed from Marxist own theories. There seems to be this, like, how would I say, like this historical, we already mentioned teleology, but it's almost like this um, Christian eschatology in a way of like, things get worse. And, you know, it's like, then there's a saving grace, you know, it's like the moment that things truly collapse in a way, that is when communism for example is ushered in and it's like in a lot of ways it's like oh well that's the kingdom of heaven or you know just to be vulgar about it yeah exactly and i think that's exactly what you guys have already mentioned that like a lot of people are trying to like critique in a way that there's this implicit teleological linear linear progression of time that we're just following the whole notion of uh ganon or genon (laughs) that's already like pre-established or pre-built in a lot of ways that ties back to what I wanted to bring up about connections to accelerationism, because I think there's a lot of, I would say, accelerationist, bulgar accelerationist thought that's like along the lines of like Lenin, where it's like, oh, well, capitalism will be destroyed by its own self-contradictions. So we have to go through this process. But in a lot of ways, I think not just a true acceleration, <laughs> I, I don't want to say that, but in a way, like a, an accelerationist point of view at least one that's closely tied to nick land's own views does follow that christian eschatology right it it has that linear notion of time as much as it pretends it doesn't but i wanted to go back to this passage from libidinal economy i think it's page 116 which kind of really points this out which i think there's like this whole aesthetic in leftist twitter where it's like oh we're right um you, you know i'm a marxist because Morally, I'm right. You know, it's like, I'm right. Uh, materialism. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like, like, oh, uh, it's, we're just, eventually we're going to get to the point where there's not going to be any capitalism. So it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's in a lot of ways it's like that's just the same bourgeois thinking it's uh let's see page yeah 116 i'm gonna read the quote why political intellectuals do you incline towards the proletariat in commiseration for what i realize that a proletarian would hate you you have no hatred because you are bourgeois privileged smooth skin types but also because you dare not say that the only important thing there is to say that one can enjoy swallowing the shit of capital its materials its metal bars its polystyrene its books its sausage patties swallowing tone tons of it till you burst and because instead of saying this which is also what happens in the desire of those who work with their hands arses heads ah you become a leader of men what a leader leader of pimps you lean forward and divulge ah but that's alienation isn't it pretty hang on we'll save you from it and we will work to liberate you from this wicked affection for servitude I'm just going to pause there. That's exactly pointing out the same attitude of, I think, Taylor, you brought it up about how there seems to be this like capitalization of this notion of alienation, of this Mm -hmm. identifying the proletarian as this particular group of individuals and somehow building up your career. God's chosen people like Mm -hmm. the Israelites, right? I just, I'm not, sorry. (laughs) No, no, you're fine. Exactly. It's like, oh, I'll save you. Right. Type of mentality. Which, uh, which already is like a self-fulfilling God complex, right? That's why we're, we're Marxists, so we can save, save the proletarians, save the proletariat from itself, right? Which, which is usually what it becomes. I think that's, that's the hidden critique. And we see that right. all too often in the history of certain, you know, Marxist movements with this question of a, of a vanguard, this question of a, you know, of a, of a party to be disassembled later, which really just reinstitutes uh, the old state. The old body without organs, you know, as as one might say. And um, I like what you brought up here. This notion about will work to liberate you from this wicked affection for servitude definitely feels uh, again hard not to think about this. The Reichian question that Deleuze and Guattari always come back to is about the masses desiring fascism. But at the same time, it makes me think of this. What's a good way to put it? I think it's this notion of, it is this notion somehow that there can be, what does he say at the end of the, the, at the end of the section about there is no subversive, what is it? Is it, there's no subversive, subversive region or how does it go? Yeah, <laughs> but it, it was really yeah, no subversive region. At the end of it, he says, or towards the end of it, maybe not at the very end, I was looking at something that, that resonated really well. He says, um, perhaps as politicians, we still and always desire to be in despair. And I think that that's, that's this interesting question for him about this is where he's going back to Baudrillard and saying, it's not like Baudrillard is redoing Rousseau with this sort of fantasy of a, of a noble savage, of a good rebel savage, but that, but that we still kind of, we then get to this point where, even if we can say that there's a good hippie or a good savage and it's a positive region, we're still kind of left with, what does he say? We fear only the consequences of the small detail of this methodological nuance that the affirmative should be delimited as a region. Since every region gives rise to regime and reign to sign and mechanism. And if therefore all one's hopes were placed in it, um, one is certain to despair. And I think that that's, that's this interesting question. I guess if, if, you know, maybe Leotard is kind of saying, like, if we want to be true militants, is this not like right. like the passion? Is this not like our libidinal passion to to actually uh, cultivate despair, right? I mean, as Deleuze might say, like, you know, philosophy is meant to sadden, et cetera. 
I know that, that and that's kind of like a bomb I just threw into the the chat, but I'm sure yeah. we we can do that's something super with that. Interesting. That reminds yeah. me of the well, one of the essays in Fang Numida, <laughs> the <laughs> critique of transcendental miserabilism. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Not just I don't want to because it's criticizing this whole notion of the position of the left as a whole, which is like mm-hmm. a position of mm-hmm. of critique that all right. they have really for anything uh, as a as a, its identity at least how it's seen now is just that it's well we use logic and we use right literary critique or blah, blah 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 that's our identity that's what we use and that's you know it's like oh well it's this whole notion of to produce something against capitalism and that's all yeah. that it, the left can do at this point it has no notion of exactly. an, a, a cohesive project against capitalism it doesn't have any notion of what it even looks like to go through capitalism all it can do at this time is simply have this preconceived story and just play it out in a lot of ways yeah. i really like what you brought up taylor about how philosophy is meant to sadden which deleuze you know mm-hmm. brings up which in a lot of ways is i mean even leotard if we're talking about leotard's book libidinal economy he's trying to point out not a positive, you could say, route or critique in a lot of ways how Deleuze and Guattari are writing in Anti-Oedipus or in uh, A Thousand Plateaus, which is a production. There's no negative, right? And at least right. in, in contrary, it doesn't even show like Leotard has a solution. He's not even interested in that kind of question in this book. Yeah. That's why he seems to call it his wicked book because it's, it's trying to simply write out this this intensity, not even a critique. It's just an intensity of mm. what it would look like for, you know, this Oedipal realism. If the masses really do want to repress themselves, why do they want to repress themselves? And even if that's for the right. garbage of capital, you can't get rid of that. You can't you can't create a system or a structure or a critique that would be strong enough to go ahead and it's like the vanguard. The vanguard doesn't exist to save the right. proletariat because the proletariat doesn't want to be saved. Right. That's a great point. I really like that. And it goes to like my favorite one of my favorite quotes is this Loyotar quote that you actually had, have already read on uh, this page right here where it says, we abhor the therapeutics and it's Vaseline. We prefer to burst on the quantitative excess that you judge the most stupid. And we don't wait for our spontaneity to rise up and revolt either. And this is sort of this thing of revolt itself is a therapy. It is a Vaseline, you know, and sort of to, to be crass, to like be raw dogged by Ganon or Capital, you know, whatever it is that's being exploitative to us. And it, 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 I think it's best kind of expounded upon in Foucault's History of Sexuality, where he very much critiques the idea of the idea of revolt as almost a romantic idea. The idea that we're going to get in the streets, we're going to fight the cops, and therefore we're going to revolt. That's not revolt anymore. That's a therapy. Revolt itself is far more complicated. And what Foucault and I think Loyotard sort of point to is that revolt happens on this almost hidden level. This level of revolting against the system, knowing that the system is probably going to perpetuate itself through its own ideas of revolt that are not effective for the people to do it. Revolt becomes yet another thing to sell to you. Join this movement. Let's do this today. You know, you can feel like you're revolting. You can have the affect of revolting, but it's not subversive. That reminds Loyotard and Foucault say. That reminds me a lot of the development of then, you know, Leotard, or sorry, no, Baudrillard talks about this. If we tie it directly to what you mentioned, what you guys mentioned earlier about Baudrillard being an evolution from the situationists. Mm -hmm. If the situationists were kind of criticizing or like saying that this narrative of counter-revolutionary culture in a way Mm -hmm. is already 
within the structure of capitalism itself, then all that we're playing out, as you've already mentioned, Young, is just this simulation, this simulation that, or the simulacrum of revolution that's not even directly tied to anything anymore, not even to other movements of revolution. It is just an empty signifier. Why do you wear the Che Guevara shirt? Well, it's because like, oh, I'm a Marxist or blah, blah. Or why do you listen to the cure or you know something mm. like that why, why are you a exactly. punk and it, it's just in the strongest sense it's the aestheticization counter-revolutionary projects and it's completely detached from any notion of what that means outside of that already pre-established logic in capitalism yeah to add to that very quickly like the loyotard idea of there being almost like no way to do that you're saying it's almost eventually they'll hand you a VR experience of revolution and it'll still be enjoyable in almost a visceral sense, but it won't be subversive in any way. Actually, the, the experience, the joyance of revolt is not necessarily revolt itself. You actually bring up a really good point that Mark Fisher talks about in Terminator versus Avatar, the essay about how, you know, the movie can be kind of summarized as a you know, this critique of we want to return to this primitive state. And we're kind of shown this whole narrative of returning to this primitive state, this internal state of man, this natural mode of being. Return to monkey, mm-hmm. to throw a meme out there. Yeah. But if anything, the thing, the very thing that facilitates, shows us this return to monkey is this whole notion that we have, you know, this incredibly uh, ludicrous and excess of entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. We have Mark Fisher uses the term proto-BR technology that puts us in that that whole notion of the world of Pandora. And we're like, oh yeah, we feel so bad for the aliens in the movie, but yet we do nothing about it. That we, mm-hmm. we go exactly to the movie theater to go see that experience of a return to monkey or a return to primitivism simply right. because we want, that's the catharsis. That's how we relieve ourselves. You could almost even say, do we even want the actualization of that? in any real sense. We desire the catharsis in the proto-BR movie experience more because it's in high definition than we would if we actually went through it, if we actually developed the systems, the structures to be counter-revolutionary. If we went through it, it wouldn't be cathartic. It wouldn't be enjoyable. In Real Revolt, you oftentimes, you die or, you know, that's basically all you did with your life. You know, you can't get a job. You can't, like, operate in society once you're, like, part of the Paris Commune. But nowadays, you absolutely can. And that should show you about the effectiveness of that particular romantic version of critique, like you're saying. The fact that we can go to a movie theater and get the same catharsis of watching a, a very, like, what we would call a revolutionary movie or something that reveals something to us about society. That feeling of being like, oh my God, that's a great critique replaces the sort of despair that real critique operates on, which is the idea of they're going to try and stop this critique, which they are sort of with, so to speak, entertainment. The true revolutionary spirit is almost despairing in that it's it's almost like this David, David Foster Wallace rejection of entertainment as a function for anything. That it's just it's just the the Vaseline, the therapeutic for a society that's very much aware that our society needs to be negated in some way. But that negation can be fit in to sort of the social processes themselves. Instead of actual negation, which is created out of that feeling, they can take that feeling and create it into something that's not only enjoyable and, you know, something that's cathartic to us, but also something that's commodifiable and sellable. It almost reminds me of a, to use the allegory of the cave from Plato, instead of coming out of the cave, even Mm -hmm. to some extent, the critic or like the academic scholar who's like 
oh, well, I understand the criticism that's being made in this movie so I can objectively understand it and truly enjoy this piece of work. If anything, being aware of the internal critique within a piece of you know radical media is already part of that very system. And by virtue exactly. of that, you're, to use allegory of the cave, you're just going deeper into the cave. You're like that guy, instead of sitting there watching the shadows, you sit and you watch the people who make the shadows and you're like, oh my God, I understand it all. But you don't realize that you need to actually leave the cave itself. The understanding the mechanisms of the cave is its own catharsis. One of the things that, um, that Leotar seems, he doesn't lay it out as directly here, I mean, but the consequences are kind of drawn out you know, throughout the, the work and he doesn't even have to say it. But in his essay on decadence, his main beef with critique isn't just that it proceeds by way of, of negativity or something like that, right? So it's not a simple question of just having a kind of affirmationism. His beef with critique in this period is that it presupposes a pedag- pedagogical function. Um, we kind of hit on this a little bit throughout, but I'm just kind of, I guess I'm restating it. It's this, this belief that there are masses to be educated, right? And somehow the intellectual's role is to bring the truth to the masses and to get them on our side, right? Whether it be the Communist Party or or whatever. And therefore, you know, I think that for Leotard, this is to accelerate the decadence of the downfall of unity, totality, finality, right? Of of truth and with a capital T and meaning with a capital M and and obviously he'll talk about this in terms of meta narratives later, right? Including the meta narrative of the the Marxist meta narrative, right? Of of sort of what we've talked about, whether it be the vanguard or etc. Just basically uh, of educating the 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 proletariat and the masses, and and thereby and thereby the intellectual fulfills a kind of organic unicity in the cycle of of education, whereby the class consciousness or whatever you want to call it is sort of uh, culminates. And I think that Leotard. I mean, we could call it a pessimism. I don't know if that's really a good way to to describe it. I think that's maybe too classical of a term, even with notwithstanding that quote we just read about, you know, despair perhaps being the necessary mode, the necessary passion. I do think, though, that he wants to, what he does in the Decadence essay is he shows how this type of reliance on critique as pedagogy can easily, in the scientific realm, turn towards what he calls the perfect experimental subject, specifically the human who is cut off from all sensory, motor sensory um, Mm -hmm. inputs, which actually eventually leads to the subject's death. But he shows this in the Bader-Meinhof incidents, right? The um, Really quickly, you know, the, the Germans were involved with some bombing, right? And they were, one of them actually died in the sensory deprivation shit that they were doing. And he, he just kind of like looks at the cruelty of it, but he sees it as the other side of the pedagogical impetus, which is this mm-hmm. this perfectly manipulable individual subject right and and so that mm-hmm. that's like the other side for him and so he sees in it you know not just the uh, the woke you know we're we're the leftists on twitter so we're right but right. But, but also this this kind of there's there's also this deviousness too and um and it and it has to do with this ultimate dream of manipulability and i think that that's that's why leotard is sees critique as as having not just pretensions, but devastating consequences in its pedagogical like worldview. A couple of things. 
I don't know if I even necessarily want to go back this far, but just to engage with the notion, Baudrillard's notion of a a region that is resistant in that sort of pre-capitalist social formation. And um, I was just thinking about that in the context of Huxley's Brave New World and John the Savage and like yeah. the Savage Reservation, because there's so much... Yeah. There's, it's so rich for libidinal analysis because of one thing. So you have that is a spectacle. It's a it's a form of the inhabitants of the brave new world visit this reservation, the savage reservation, yeah. and they consume this simulation of whatever. There's that angle to it, the exchange and like libidinal desire of that and that sort of lost past to kind of go in the sense of, in the direction of Baudrillard. So you have that. But then you have this this figure of John the Savage who comes into the brave new world, right? And he sort of falls in love with uh, Lenina. But then he's just he's horrified by her sexual openness, the sexual openness right. of the brave new world, and ends up killing himself because he can't handle he can't handle yeah. the libidinal intensity of it all. Well, I think yeah, brave new world is actually like I think a great example or a great text to pair with Leotard. And I'll just take it a step further. The John the Savage is so interesting because it's not only that he dies because he sort of is not yet ready for the libidinal economy of the brave new world. You know, like he does get jealous about this girl he likes and the fact that she's completely polyamorous and at this point, and he doesn't really understand that yet. But I think the thing that kills him is actually the fact that he is very rebellious. He leaves the world. He goes to a lighthouse and he tries to live a life of uh, almost like an anarcho-primitivist. But then people keep coming and they keep looking at it as something that's, yeah, catharsis to them. You know, they're like, look at this guy who's living in this cool way. Like, he's a real rebel and he kills himself. And it goes back to what we were saying about that. If the critique is still made part of the system, so to speak, the critique is, is a spectacle that's used to sort of give catharsis to the people in the system. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's very good. I think also what's kind of interesting in that that whole thing is John the Savage does have this sort of Christ-like, mm-hmm. um, or there's a perhaps a Christ, like you can interpret it, him as sort of this Christ-like figure. And he, he gets upset about Lenina's sexual openness, right? But it's kind of funny because in just the way that Leotard discusses Christ as prostitute. So it's kind of an interesting reversal or, or something of that of that relationship because that's how he he calls her an impudent strumpet he's also kind of fucked up in the head from his mother who obviously came from the commune right who has all the same Mm -hmm. programmings that lenina does which is about basically everyone economy right (laughs) yeah everyone's for everyone else right everyone belongs to everyone else everyone's bodies are accessible potentially for it to everyone else and that's why he grows up with this mother who's who's who is in no way shape or form all of her psychological programming at least all of her social reinforcements coming from brave new world is is uh motherhood is something object something mm-hmm. something that is that is uh, harassed like horrifying yeah. yes it, it's not supposed to be viviparous right it's not it's supposed to be all bottles and shit so a woman who actually gives live birth is the utmost shame and yeah. disgust. So he comes from this background who, with a mother who's fucked up, who gives him all these fucked up ideas about sex, who's constantly stealing other men from, from women. So she's getting her ass beat by all the women in the, in the, in the tribe hated. So yeah, his, his ideas about sex, obviously Huxley is working out this extreme ends of the dialectic of, you know, Freudian sexuality 
mm-hmm. to a point that's obviously he's obviously parroting it in in many ways and um and so I, in that sense yeah it, it's another reason why it juxtaposes well with with Leotard. but i like what chris was saying yeah this this notion that that we could somehow get outside of this inside outside dialectic mm-hmm. he can go and live alone but he can't make that positive space for himself at least in the mm-hmm. frame in the framework of how huxley ends it the other thing is the nostalgia that John the Savage's mother has for the brave new world versus the savage world. It's right. not like she leaves it and she's like, yeah. oh my God, this is so much better. Her whole life is based on the fact that she really wanted just to get back to the Soma. And when she gets back, she literally just takes Soma until she dies. That's mm-hmm. like her entire life path. Which is the, I don't main have idea. A, yeah, that's the main point of the whole book is to mm-hmm. go back to that great zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> being cynical there. Following that, I think we're almost like obligated to go through the famous quote about the English workers enjoying the destruction of their bodies under the industrial world. But you will say, it gives rise to power and domination, to exploitation and even extermination. Quite true, but also to masochism. But the strange bodily arrangement of the skilled worker with his job and his machine, which is so often reminiscent of the dispositif of hysteria, can also produce the extermination of a population. Look at the English proletariat at what capital, that is to say, their labor has done to their body. You will tell me, however, that it was that or die, but it was always that or die. This is the law of libidinal economy. No, not the law. This is its provisional, very provisional definition in the form of the cry of intensities of desire, that or die, i.e. that and dying from it. Death always in it as the internal bark, its thin nut skin, not yet as its price, on the contrary, as that which renders it unpayable. And perhaps you believe that or die is an alternative, and that if they chose that, they become the slave of the machine, the machine of the machine, fucker fucked by it, eight hours, 12 hours a day, year after year. It is because they are forced into it, constrained, because they cling to life. Death is not an alternative to it. It is part of it. It attests to the fact that there is jouissance in it. The English unemployed did not become workers to survive. They hang on tight and spit on me, enjoyed it. The hysterical, masochistic, whatever exhaustion of it was hanging on in the mines and the foundries and the factories in hell, they enjoyed it. Enjoyed the mad destruction of their organic body, which was indeed imposed on them. They enjoyed the decomposition of their personal identity, the identity that the peasant tradition had constructed for them. Enjoyed the dissolution of their families and villages and enjoyed the new monstrous anonymity of the suburbs and pubs in the morning and evening. I think that quote is so memed, but not in a bad way. Like it's so so widely recognized by different circles. I mean, I just want to if anybody wants to add before it I... It reminds me, I was just going to say, Julius Evola, who's a famous politically Italian fascist, when he writes about sort of how you instill values, he has this interesting quote where he says, somebody who's a good neighbor to their neighbor makes life hard for that same neighbor. A good neighbor makes life hard for their neighbor, is the exact quote. But his point being like, humanity and the individual human enjoys challenges or needs challenges to make a decision. And there's almost this fascist idea of things should be hard. You enjoy suffering to a certain extent. And fascism wants to use that as a political paradigm. Masochism as a political paradigm is sort of the entire fascist thing. But then there's this flip end to it where it's, if you create a society of sort of a brave new world society where nothing is challenging, where there's really no suffering, that's going to be yearned for because it's a natural part of sort of what humans libidinally want. We want to be like used, dominated, violated, violence used against us in a certain way. That is why 
capitalism can use that to its productive advantage to be like, actually people enjoy the hard work. They enjoy working in a factory, at least in the 19th, 18th centuries, they enjoy working in a factory. And these days it's the idea of people enjoy working 80 hour work week, no matter what they do. The idea of suffering being something that's enjoyable is simultaneously then used as suffering as a sort of political manipulation tool. When everything is comfortable, People are going to want some sort of suffering to make their lives seem like they're moving towards something. And if you're smart, if you're somebody who wants to manipulate people, then you can manipulate that exact tendency to want to work very hard. Loyotard works very hard. I mean, he's an incredible thinker and he's read all these books. He's worked very hard. He's suffered. But also the English proletariat has suffered just as much, if not more, physically, if not mentally. But suffering is something that we desire. Therefore, it's something that can be manipulated very easily towards whatever ends that particular party wants. I remember correctly, I think, I think it's when John the Savage meets the, uh, the overseer and, you know, he's talking to him about not just the banned books and stuff like Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but the overseer mentions something about one of the first models of because, you know, the, the, the new London is not the only, like, little self-contained city. There are, there are others. Mm-hmm. It was just that he mentioned that one of the versions, one of the early working models was completely eliminating work and how that actually fucked it up. And they went back to, like, the eight-hour workday or whatever the fuck it was. That was just, it was just like an, it, it was an aside, basically. He, he was saying how, just to tie it in, to what we were just discussing, that in fact, that too much free time and that and that not having a designated function struggle yeah. to yeah mm-hmm. or or you know or just just the idea that even the alphas needed some sort of task to do instead of just being everything automated and everything leisure that that actually right. that didn't work out in a way that was beneficial and That's so like the matrix too like yeah. remember they said they tried mm-hmm. to do something similar but it. They tried to make it perfect, but yeah. they were like, people would disconnect right away and die. I was thinking about this. Someone had a good, I can't remember who it was, but they were t- telling me about this particular quote and how the reason that the workers enjoyed the destruction of their bodies is because this is the only way to escape the human by becoming a machine. Mm-hmm. That's obviously like an act sort of approach to that, but that's something someone, someone had given me in a discussion about this a few days ago. Part of that is in Circuitries by Nicolaine. Let me see. It does make sense. I suppose it's also question what, what Deleuze and Quattri, they talk about machines working when they break down, right? And so this is, if we take literally that our, you know, organization, that our organs, that our organism, not even metaphorically, is, is a, you know, series of these conjoined and disjoined and connected machines, you know, it makes sense that, that what we're talking about with the... Now, I assume that, that the English proletariat is talked about here because Marx was living in England at the time. And so, and that was... Yeah, that's... And that was one of his main... Right. He, he talks a lot Reference about points. things. Yeah. All right. Just making yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm, yeah, you're pr- that's almost a, assuredly what it is. I think it is funny, like, in the context, too, of this... Well, this is a different angle, but this sort of... What is it? The Protestant work ethic. And I discussed this in, like I said, one of my egoist episodes about someone like Jeff Bezos is not really an egoist because they continue to work. Logically, if you're about self 
if you are an egoist that is about self-enjoyment, then there's no logical reason to continue when you have exceeded the amount of accumulation that you could even expend. And yet there's no symbolic exchange, which mm-hmm. the symbolic exchange is, is what it is a gift that has no use value. That's what gives the symbolic exchange right. its power is that it lacks a utility. It's completely superfluous. So maybe that is, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think you answered your own question. Yeah, <laughs> right? <there>. yeah exactly. <laughs> well, it, it sounds even like, all wealth now. It's all superfluous. It, I mean, it sounds like he's literally a tool, right? right. I mean, he's, a machine, a machine for capital. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because he is a singular, he's not the only super rich person, right. but he's, he, mm-hmm. but it, but you do see how constellated around him in the Amazon business model uh, infiltrating in all of our you know intimate lives with with any product you know it's just just consumer fantasy being at the head of that there's something singularly fascinating as you question Coop, why does he keep working and it's like on the one hand he's like identified with with the machine you know bezos and amazon are kind of like inextricably linked as signifier and signified on, on that sense so like yeah. it is his quote-unquote baby but yeah he's he is kind of one could say the most and least interesting person in the world he's at this conjoined point of of all these flows and yet he's eating fucking lizards he's doing boring shit he should fucking do some potlatch man that's a baudrillard baudrillard idea right yeah it's just interesting to like think why wouldn't you reinvest all of that into making amazon like a good place to work actually taking care of your, your right. workers giving away money giving and just, i'm just talking dude, about his own like you literally your own selfish enjoyment it's fucking right. dumb i'm like why well, would you why would you I not would, do a lot of drugs yeah right. or like right. pot all the drugs like, or like yeah, a pot yeah. latch right have all the money i kind of want to just critique that notion of like because i don't think i i haven't read nearly as much sterner as other people but I don't think egoism necessitates or entails implied hedonism, right? This need Not to fully, go ahead. No. But it's, it's about it's, personal enjoyment and like taking ownership of that. I, it's it's not about like work. It wouldn't be, it definitely wouldn't be, oh, let me work to accumulate massive wealth. It would be about enjoyment and pursuing enjoyment socially through the other. But in a way, it's part of it is also, I mean, uh, my understanding, it's about rights, right? Uh, not like rights, I get, how would I say yeah, it's it? definitely not about rights. He hates. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't. It not defer the rights. What gives you power? It's more of that you give yourself this notion of property through your own power right. through the individual ego. Um, and so in that sense, that's that's where I guess I would be coming at it. I also don't want to say that you know someone like what's his name? Why am I blanking on his name? Bezos. Bezos. Yeah, I keep thinking of Bill Kazos. <laughs> yeah. So don't, so, don't, so don't blame me. That's um, funny. I'm just gonna say Kazos. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Bezos. Someone like him. Not to defend the <laughs> the one percent, but in a way they can really do whatever they want with the free time and the mm-hmm. resources that they've accumulated. Right. That, that's the whole notion of them being in a way, kind of removed from this. The real workers, the people who work in Amazon, they add the value. They are the value of Amazon. What does uh, Bezos do? Like, just like if, Yeah, like what does he actually do? Does he does, right. does he not defer 90% of, probably 99% labor, of yeah. all of the labor, even to his quote-unquote right-hand men? You know, he, there's mm-hmm. executive chairs. They have, they defer He's the body without organs, man. He's the body without organs. All the capital mm-hmm. is just, 
you know, miraculates on his body. And and it's not to say, you know, kind of like this this moralizing, like I'm not trying to make Bezos sound either good or bad. Well, it's funny because I'm like moralizing in a sense by saying, okay, this, the way that he expresses his egoism is, is bad. That would be like contra to Sterner really. And even I think more directly leotard there is no po- there is no positive or negative expression of desire or libido it's all just one yeah. for in that sense he's following i guess the libid- libidinal accumulation but i don't know i feel like that's mm-hmm. somewhat spooked too yeah, like what, what i'm trying to get at is the same way that the proletariat or whatever you want to call you know amazon workers do they not benefit in a way like, to use the example you know if, if there's no longer factory workers or you know mine workers to use Leotard's example, let's say we're all Amazon workers or retail workers, or whatever. In a way, the labor that we trade out, this reminds me a lot of the example that we did of last week's reading of the prostitution. We trade out our labor, our bodies, we, you know, we reduce them to mush in a way for the exchange of this monetary value of this, you know, the symbol, which is currency mm-hmm. in exchange for to actualize it, it's a necessary transmutation of desire to currency and then currency back to desire that is part of not just on one side of the morbius strip of a system of a rigid rigid system to you know use the marx's meta narrative but simultaneously to now cool down the band that is part of libidinal economy as an intensity of desire it, your actual mm-hmm. to use dng's language you're 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 actualizing a desire you're actually allowing a flow to go through when i get paid with my check what's the first thing that i'm going to do donate Buy it to mids to yeah exactly am i going to actually go and donate half of my check to some mutual aid group or am i actually going to go and spend it on a ps5 or something like that what am I mm-hmm. more likely to do just based on my own desire? Well, and your desire can be for both, though. It, it can, yeah. it could be for, or you can do selfless things right. for desi- based on desire and egoism, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah but I how much? That's what the, one of Sterner's points is everyone's an egoist. A lot of people are just egoists in bad faith. So mm-hmm. this yeah. sort of altruist, altruism is a way to pursue your own egoistic desire as well because you want to feel good about, about yourself, draw the jouissance of that expression. I definitely, I definitely feel that. I do that myself. Like I don't have a lot of money, but I try and donate probably 30, 30, 40% of it to either mutual aid groups or to like my, my own interaction with homeless people, whether that's like giving them money or like for a long time, I had like an organization that I would try and use that money for. But at the end of the day, I completely agree that that's not my genuine. Well, it's, there's a question of what you consider genuine care for other people and what altruism is. Yeah. But my larger point is that I think altruism, you're right, is an egoism. You know, it comes from my own principles, which is an egoistic perspective. It comes, yeah. Uh, definitely it's because I value service to other people as a high thing, but it's me valuing that. You know what I mean? It makes you feel good. I feel good because I value it that way, not because right. it's just naturally good to give to others. Yeah. You know? I'm thinking about potlatch as a practice because the whole point of potlatch is to show how wealthy you are by giving away, right? And that's contra right. to this notion of, of Jeff Bezos or this example of Bezos that we've sort of gone over. Not under Bataille's notion of pop. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> I guess what I was trying to point out, and maybe I was just... No, I think to, you were on an interesting... Um, maybe not to to directly tie it to egoism. Like I mentioned, I, I've neglected the the ego book 
You should read it. It's fucking great. Uh, I've read a little bit of Sterner, but I, would you guys, re- <laughs> just to uh, go on the tangent, would you well, recommend? Just what we're talking about today in terms of so the, much. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, clearly, Sterner was kind of outside of what people were willing to accept at the time, which to me means he was very ahead of his time in terms of his critiques of Marxism, capitalism of his time. So I feel like he's just waiting to be read for like a generation that's willing to understand that even what's, Marxism is not subversive enough. What's really funny is how he influences not only Marx, but all the subsequent post-structuralists via Althusser. He, mm-hmm. has, a, he has a critique of ideology that's very proto- um, Ideological state apparatus. Yes, yes, exactly. He has like a proto version of that. He's got, a, he's got a Foucauldian thing, yeah. and then he anticipates some of what Deleuze and Guattari do i mean even down to using like a machine machine as a as like a motif so yeah definitely a lot of that dialectic of egoism and altruism you find in nietzsche especially in like the middle works of like human all too human and daybreak trying to and i think in beyond good and evil i believe uh so you'll you'll see a lot of uh i don't know if I don't know. Did, does Deleuze talk about Nietzsche reading Stirner? I, know, I, I don't no. remember if he, he ever... mentions. He does mention Stirner several times in the Nietzsche and philosophy book. But Nietzsche never himself mentions. No, no, okay. not so I didn't much. think so. I mean, I've heard conflicting stories of whether Nietzsche actually engaged with Stirner or not. It's mm-hmm. an open question, I think. Well, it's the same thing with Nietzsche doesn't, doesn't talk about Marx. And it's like, how, right. how, how could he have not... Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's interesting, right? Because Freud himself doesn't say much about Nietzsche, except that he kept himself from reading Nietzsche so that he wouldn't spoil spoil all of his thinking, right? So, but, so, that, yeah. so that Nietzsche wouldn't prove that, that like Freud had all the stuff that Freud was doing had already been like articulated. Yeah. yeah. Especially like Will in that sense too. Will as drive or something mm-hmm. or libidinal drive or, or something like that. I but guess it, he didn't read Schroeder because he read Schopenhauer and he like got enough, <laughs> you know, something. I want to read this next bit. This is actually, this is again from Symbolic Exchange and Death, but I think it's extremely relevant. I was going to ask before we go on, because I've been, I've been wondering about this for a long time. We've been talking about decadence as an idea in Loyotard. And I was wondering, all of you, I'm wondering this from, but for those like, uh, you know, Nietzsche develops a concept of decadence that is very influential. And I'm wondering if you guys think that this is decadence as like Nietzsche sees it, especially like Birth of Tragedy and, and his idea of decadence. Do you think that this is when I, cause when I think of decadence, I'm pretty much just downloading my Nietzschean knowledge of decadence. Yeah. I'm wondering that's, if that's like Le- correct. Leotar makes it explicit. He's, yeah. he's getting that straight from, from Nietzsche. Yeah. Great. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about Nietzsche and decadence. Man, Great. I think it'd Thank be you. even interesting to investigate this with Schopenhauer. What is it? World is will and representation. Yeah. I think that representation side of it is interesting too, not just the will aspect. Yeah. Very curious how that comes into play. But I want to read this bit from Symbolic Exchange and Death. I would assume that Baudrillard is probably directly responding to libidinal economy here. Here we agree with Leotard's hypothesis on the level of libidinal economics. The intensity of the exploited enjoy, exploited's enjoyment, jouissance, in their very abjection. And Leotard is right. Libidinal intensity, the charge of desire, and the surrendering of death are always there in the exploited, but no longer on the properly symbolic rhythm of the immediate retaliation and therefore total resolution. The enjoyment of powerlessness on sole condition that this is not a fantasy aimed at reinstating the triumph of desire at the level of the proletariat will never abolish power. 
the very modality of the response to the slow death of labor leaves the master the possibility of, once again, repeatedly giving the slave life through labor. The accounts are never settled. It always profits power, the dialectic of power, which plays on the splitting of the poles of death, the poles of power, which or the poles of exchange, rather. The slave remains the prisoner of the master's dialectic, while his death or his distilled life serves the indefinite repetition of domination. This domination increases as the system is charged with neutralizing the symbolic retaliation by buying it back through wages. If through labor, the exploited attempts to give his life to the exploiter, the latter wards off this by restitution by means of wages. Here again, we must take a symbolic radiograph. Contrary to all appearances and experience, capital buys its labor power from the worker and extorts surplus labor. Capital gives labor to the worker, and the worker himself gives capital to the capitalist. Based in Baudrillard. <laughs> I think it's interesting, this picking up on the master-slave dialectic context of this whole discussion, and I think to the two sides of the dialectic being like a Bezos and Amazon workers, right? Just the enjoyment of powerlessness will never abolish power. This kind of reminds me of that thing that was, I think it was brought up earlier in the chapter, or even when we mentioned it in relation to transcendental miserableism. miserableism yeah. yeah which is like you, you already mentioned it taylor oh just now reading Baudrillard. yeah uh, just now enjoy, uh, enjoyment of powerlessness will never abolish power exactly so um why do the academic leftists make their careers out of something that's you know just resentment their whole work is a work of resentment in a lot of ways why would the worker why would the proletarian relate to that in any sense at least through how i would see it the labor or the proletarian you know, they see the products of, you know, even if they are exploited as such, they would see the labors, their labor manifests itself through their wage as, well, I'm actualizing or I'm producing, I have this power, you could say, because of this power that capital, or I guess in this case, wage offers me. In that sense, if you were a proletariat worker and you hear somebody that's, we're the proletariat, we have to come together and do all this. And they have no connection with that individual. There's no, That's why mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I don't mean to get too political here, but someone like Joe Biden just comes off as a bourgeois, snotty statesman compared to you know the quote-unquote real fascist who is Donald Trump, who appeases the masses by actually speaking in their tongue in a way that, in a code that actually makes sense to them. And it's almost right. like, if you actually took what Donald Trump said, it sounds a lot like the same rhetoric that Mussolini or even Hitler was saying to the workers at that time. Why did we lose? And then it, it defers this, this resentment to these other categories. In this case, you know, you know, the mass immigration of the Jews and gypsy workers. I don't know if gypsy is even a good term to use, but just to use the same travelers as maybe travelers. Yeah. In that sense, the hardcore academic smooth skin bourgeois academic is never going to reach the heart of the proletariat of the worker and so to go ahead and try to come at revolution or possibilities of going against the capitalist machine from the standpoint of theory alone is already dead on arrival and and in in a way it's almost it's self-aware about that theory Mm. is self-aware of that the theorist is aware of that yeah the academic is aware i guess the theory itself is whatever it's not really but the academic themselves or maybe they're not aware of it but they're definitely so far removed from any notion of um, their life (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's a good one yeah in in a way to use to use a government's term they're so far removed from 
Zoe, you know, what do they even have in common with the average yeah. person or worker, what have you? It's really nothing. There's this irony too, where it's so if Deleuze and Guattari are right, that the mass itself at the end of the day desires fascism, then in a way you don't have anything connected to the masses if you desire something truly revolutionary. If that's the case, then the revolutionary theorist is just so far removed from the actual desire of the normal person that it's nonsensical, which I also think is why Nick Land can be so effective as he understands that like the mass probably does desire fascism. And therefore, in a certain way, I can repudiate all of my so-called revolutionary knowledge and just sort of reach this person without even having them understand who Loyotard or Nietzsche is with just my ability to be like, okay, the mass desires fascism and I will give them the fascism that they want. I would just modulate a little bit because when Reich says, ask that question and Deleuze and Guattari bring it up, we need to understand why or how the masses desired fascism. I, I think that, mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's not necessarily a given that they will in every contingent situation historically desire it, but that in this, in, in this case, at least in, in, this. in the 20th century, in these different areas, which means of course that it's, it's right to believe that they can and, and probably will Again, mm-hmm. and we've, we've, we've kind of seen that as well. It's also this question of then for, especially for like the, a militant like Guattari and, and, and at least somewhat Deleuze after meeting and working with Guattari, you know, this question of the conjunction of the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine, that being so important for schizoanalysis, it does mm-hmm. still have to face uh, Leotard's, again, it's not a pessimism, but maybe a skepticism of... Mm-hmm this pedagogical maneuvering that still has to be affected, whereby even if the losing Guattari are not going to say like, we know the truth and we're going to give you the truth uh, as mm-hmm. we crowd, we happy collective assembly, but it still has to, I mean, this is tough mm-hmm. because this is why, again, this is, this is wicked because Leotard himself obviously has to sacrifice himself too, to that demand of parroting any, like linear attempt at a pedagogical movement or moment of we have the knowledge like Socrates and we just need to get you guys to listen and take that knowledge and then you'll do the right thing, right? You'll support mm-hmm. whatever angle we're sort of sketching out. And and yeah, I mean, obviously what you said about Nick Land is interesting. And I think that that has a lot of relevance there because I do think that the, at the same time, I, you don't see a lot of Land necessarily being like, I have the truth, the knowledge, and the way. In many ways, he's he's always kind of disparaging himself when he's like, "Why the fuck are you? You've read all my works. What what's wrong with you? Go, yeah. you know, go get some help." <laughs> it's um, a side of mental illness, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, so he's able to, and I think that that's part of what Leotard is doing. And one of the effective movements mm-hmm. in, in liberal economy is the fact that there are, while there are funny moments, he's not really trying to to be funny. And that's what keeps the tension so wrought with these sentences, you know, that Grant talks about translating and that seemingly never end. There's all of this tension and we don't necessarily get easy releases. You know, Leotard keeps keeps saying like, no, don't come yet, right? He's, he's like, <laughs> not yet, guys. Stay with me. Keep it in this this kind of theoretical tantrism, yes, right? I love uh, that. I love that. Yeah. That's so good. I guess my main point was that I, I feel like Deleuze and Guattari have more of it would be a question i think it would be a real good question to to come to bear against 
the capitalism of schizophrenia works and say, where are they leaning on perhaps a surreptitious pedagogical moment of intellectuals wielding, so to speak, imaginarily or not, power over the masses, whatever, right? I mean, I, I do think that Lewis and Guattari kind of try to straddle that line, whereas Leotard is, at least in this period, like, we can't, we're not doing critique. That's some supercilious kind of faux butt-sniffing bullshit, right? Just to kind of build up on that a little bit, Taylor, I think you brought up a good distinction that I think we brought up the first episode, which is, maybe it was in the second episode, I don't remember. The whole notion of this, the losing Guattari, what they're doing is trying to do this critique <laughs> of, Oed- of Oedipus in sure, a way. Right. Uh, let's just let's just put it in that in that sense. And mm-hmm. you know, as stated, Leotard is almost is doing this Oedipal realism to kind of right, tie yeah, to Mark yeah. Fisher. And in a lot of ways, that distinction is important because then we can see Deleuze and Guattari's again as a more productive, a more affirmative work altogether, which is criticized by a work like Dark Deleuze, which we could get into. <laughs> and then something like Leotard, it's definitely, if anything, it's in the deep Nietzschean tradition of resentment. It's taking the Oedipus or the Oedipal structure as the uh, the true topology of the subconscious in a way uh, to tie it back to Freud. That is what people want. People do want to be subjectivized, to be, mm-hmm. uh, I think Lacan is famously quoted, what we want is a master. Yeah, what you want is a new master and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll have one, you'll get one or something. I only know that yeah. quote in, in Spanish. <laughs> Uh-huh. What does it sound like in Spanish? In Spanish, lo que vosotros queremos, queremos es un amo. What we want or what we desire <laughs> is a master. And right. so I guess that's the, what I'm trying to flush out is that in a lot of ways, 100%, Leotard, I would even say, does not give a solution on purpose. That's, that's not the point of libidinal economy. It's simply right. if he's reading, if he's completely coming from a book like Anti-Oedipus, he's simply saying, okay, so I'm going to take this whole notion of diagrammatization and use that taking intensities as something real and then making, developing a work from one of those intensities, from one of those nodes, and then flushing that out, going to its ultimate conclusion, no matter where it takes. And if that means disaffirming or drawing the tensions between or uh, Marx, and I think he explicitly sh- mentions this in the beginning of the chapter of the tensions between old man Marx and the little girl, and I forgot what the other third Marx is, but there's this explicit tension between them, and it's never fully flushed out. I think he brings mm-hmm. up Marlou Ponty mm-hmm. as someone who thinks that we should read Marx as a classic, as just this complete set of work with no... Like up there with Hegel and Kant. In the purest sense, to read Marx's mm-hmm. work as is already this structure that there's no alternative right. interpretation of Marx. So in yeah. a lot of ways, it's there is different types of Marx. There's there's different intensities already within Marx's work, and mm-hmm. to really flush him out as an author, not as a theorist, as an economist, as a philosopher, but as someone who is writing down their work. And I think Taylor, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast to suitably put it, psychoanalyze Marx as an individual, as opposed to yeah. taking the work as a as a meta meta narrative that it is right mm-hmm. right and leotard himself talks about this this interesting notion of marx as an artist and this question oh, yeah, that's a great of, quote too of the the entire needing the entire body right and and so it gets into this question of totality and and obviously um this detotalization that that leotard is not not necessarily really striving for but just striving to articulate and show how it's already 
the reality of the situation or of situations in general, unity and totality being kind of classical dreams of whether it be the, the body of work, like a, like a body, like capital, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the manuscripts, yeah. Or even capital as a body, he does talk about that too. So I think that'll, that'll wrap us up. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.